0: You're listening to
1: Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good
2: afternoon everybody and welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and um, I hope you all are having a, a restful and uh, uh, pre-holiday season. I know we're not, but I hope you are. Um, our show today is called The Process of Change, and um, I'm extremely happy to have as our guest Dr. Carla Clemente, who is internationally recognized as a co-creator with James Prochaska of the Trans-Theoretical Model of Change, a model that identifies stages of change and other factors that predict treatment outcomes and allows many more people to enter treatment programs at earlier stages of readiness. He has presented this model of international behavior, I'm sorry, of intentional behavior change in training workshops both here in the United States and in many other countries. His current research interests include smoking initiation and cessation, alcoholism and substance abuse treatment, dual diagnosis, early intervention with problem drinkers, pregnancy smoking cessation, and initiation of health protection and health-threatening behaviors. Welcome, Dr. Clemente.
3: Glad to be here, Mary.
2: Um, there is just so much to uh, begin to talk about with you, and I thought maybe for um, some of our listeners, you might want to just briefly ex- explain the trans-theoretical model. Well, sure.
3: Um, it's a big word for a relatively simple concept, uh, that basically um, whenever people are making behavior changes that are intentional, which means that they really are... Uh, have to be kind of involved in making that change. There are some changes that that you don't have to be involved in, uh but in the ones you have to be involved in, usually people go through and work through a series of stages or tasks uh related to those stages until they really are able to kind of successfully do this and change the behavior and uh, you know make it stable and keep it keep it going. So we've identified a series of stages uh from what we call pre-contemplation where the person isn't seriously thinking about making the change to contemplation where they're beginning to kind of think about it and making a kind of a risk-reward analysis uh, to preparation where they've made a decision now they have to make a commitment and a plan to action where you have to integrate and and kind of uh, implement that plan and then revise it all the way through to maintenance where you actually have to kind of sustain that change over time and really integrate it into your life. And, and so there are things that people need to do at each of those points that would help them move forward uh, in making a positive change or a negative change. I mean, people go through these same stages if they're, uh, even in, in initiating bad behaviors, uh, in initiating addictions, you can actually identify these same stages of how people go through, they're intrigued, and they... Decide and they move forward and, and uh, uh, get involved and then get hooked, and uh, it becomes then a, a long-term behavior that, that they're engaged in. So that's the the essence of the stage part. The other part of the model is what we call the processes of change, and that's really kind of the actions that people need to do to engage and complete these tasks that we just talked about. So it's a it's a complex kind of model, but it really is simple. If you if you talk to people about what they did when they changed a the behavior, usually they can tell you some of the things that they did, and they will track pretty well onto this
2: kind of model
3: of uh, tasks that people have to do in order to make a change possible.
2: I think one of the fascinating things about this model is the concept that. Um, the people actually experience this process. And um, I know when um, I first learned about the model, one of the things that, that struck me in, in the book was um, that like 90% of our treatment programs were geared towards like 80% of our treatment population, that most of us think that when people come into treatment they're ready to change, when in, in effect they might be ready to change, but it, they might not be ready to make the changes we're hoping for.
3: That's right. I think many people come into treatments, I think, worried about what's going on or pressured by other people and not necessarily ready to make the change that's there. And even if they think they want to make that change, they haven't always made the decision, uh, a firm decision. They haven't built a good plan. They haven't made the commitment to kind of do it. And, And we have lots of really good action-oriented kind of programs. So, you know, come on in here and do this and do this and do that. And if you bring action-oriented programs up against people who are ambivalent or not necessarily kind of ready or haven't really thought it through or aren't committed or this isn't part of what they were planning, then you come up with a kind of a mismatch uh, of where you are with where they are. And that, I think, creates lots of problems for people.
2: Well, and it does. And I think in my experience, those problems go back onto the client. It's like they're in denial or there's something in effect wrong with the person who's coming into treatment when it's the reason that there is is a mismatch and that um, the treatment that they're coming into isn't designed to help them.
3: Right. You know, treatment providers are not uh, immune to uh, blaming the victim kinds of things. I think that's really the issue is uh, we've labeled people, and, you know, when we first started working in this field, I mean, anybody who wasn't ready to change was talked about as being in denial or being resistant or uh, not having yet hit bottom uh, so that uh, they were really thrown out of treatment until they could get ready and come back in and, uh, and be ready to do exactly what we wanted them to do, and the hopeful part about this model is, well, maybe. Wait a minute. There may be some things we can do earlier in this process. There may be ways to engage people who aren't quite ready and help them get ready. Um, and, and I think that's been the real, the, the, the real uh, eye opener for a lot of people and a lot of treatment people. And so there's a lot more engagement strategies and people thinking about how to deal with ambition.
2: You're talking about engagement strategies. Um, can you give our listeners a couple, um, you know, examples?
3: Well, you know, for example, someone who's pushed in by the courts to come into treatment. I mean, typically they don't want to be there. They're angry. They're frustrated. Um, an engagement strategy would really be to talk to them about where they are, what they're feeling, how this has happened to them. Um, to somewhat identify with their sense of being pressured, <clears throat> to really kind of uh, understand that, you know, and, and be kind of be on their side um, in order to kind of see their point of view uh, so that they can begin to recognize that you're not the, the person pushing them. And uh, I like to see us going through this process, I like to say, you know, you have to stand beside the person, not in front of the person, if you want them to walk forward in this process. So I think that's one kind of engagement strategy. I think, um, you know, trying to kind of get them, uh, give people feedback uh, of of where they are. And if somebody says, you know, I really don't drink that much, and yet you look at their drinking pattern and you say, you know, this is drinking more than 95% of the people in the United States. Well, people, take note of that and kind of go, well, wait a minute, that, that can't be true. I, I'm a normal drinker. And if you if you just present some things that are more factual and objective that are really, uh, that, that really trigger somebody kind of getting concerned and maybe say, wait a minute, maybe I do have more of a problem than I thought, then you're engaging that person to really think about their own issues.
2: And that's really the, the secret, I think, um, of, of to any really effective treatment is being able to see the person from their own perspective mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to make them fit into our treatment model or our treatment design.
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think they have to do the work. I mean, that's the, the issue. I think addictions particularly, we had this old model that, you know, send them into the hospital for 28 days, Um, You know, when I first got in the field, everybody had 28 days in their insurance coverage. That's no longer true. But you'd send them in for 28 days, and then they were supposed to fix them in the hospital during that 28 days, and then they were supposed to come out and be okay. Well, that just doesn't work. I mean, you can't fix this problem, which has often gone on for long periods of time, in, in just a short period of time. Yes, hospitalization may be a helpful thing, but, but that person has got to get engaged and has to have a plan. Uh, like we used to say, was you know that it's what you do the day after you get out of the hospital, not the 28 days you were in the hospital. That really makes the difference, and that's under your control. So you're the only one who can do that
2: uh, and manage that. Right, and, and looking at this as an illness that can be managed, and it's a chronic illness as opposed to there's a there's an identifying event that's going to make someone better.
3: Uh, right, right. I think the chronicity of this, I think, is surprising. Well, we've just really—it hasn't been too long that we have moved away from what I, uh, what has been called the moral model. Uh, looking at these, I mean, these are addictions. These are addictive behaviors. They're bad behaviors. You shouldn't do them. Shape up and just don't do them. And and uh, more and more now we're understanding that wait a minute, there's a lot more to it than that. These are chronic relapsing disorders as as are similar to a lot of other chronic conditions uh, where people need to kind of do a lot of things in order to make a change and to sustain that change over time, particularly since in a lot of cases we're talking about some um, physiological kind of changes that are also going along with taking the substances. Uh, so once you get the biology and the psychology and the social forces all kind of pulling together to go down a certain direction,
2: making a change in that is not is not easy. And, uh, right. You
4: know, and sure and
2: then it's been my experience in this profession that we're looking for an all-or-nothing change. It's like you have to stop, you know, change all the people, places, and things, and that abstinence, you know, is the only measure of success when in when in other chronic illnesses we have a lot more tolerance for people gradually giving up the things that they need to give up in order to um, uh, manage their illnesses and and I think that um, the one of the nice things for me in using this this model is that you know we're able to think a little bit more creatively and take some of the pressure off our, our Our patients, as well as ourselves, in terms of, you know, um, you don't have to do it all overnight, and you don't have to make a commitment to abstinence overnight. Because oftentimes people start losing weight by stopping, by changing to Splenda in their coffee, and Mm -hmm. there, in fact, begins their, um, their, you know, their weight loss. So um, when we come back from our commercial, we'll talk a little bit more with Dr. D. Clemente about the process of change and um, how we become initiated both in positive behaviors and uh, challenging behaviors. We'll be right back.
1: You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have Smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order
5: 800 380 4259 800 380 4259. Save up to $100 now. 800 380 4259 800 380 4259. A fresh
1: look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time.
2: Um, welcome back to One Hour at a Time. We're talking with Dr. Di Carlo Di Clemente about the process of change. And I don't think I mentioned earlier that Dr. Di Clemente is currently at the University of Maryland at the Baltimore campus. Mm-hmm. And um, we were talking before our break about this whole idea of um, change happening gradually, which kind of I was leading up to the whole concept of harm reduction, which has kind of been a four-letter word in this profession for a yep. number of years. Really believe that um, for a lot of people that's that's essential to them getting better. What are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, I, I think so too, Mary. I think it's really been. Um, I mean, people have uh, made dichotomies, and it makes this either-or stuff always get you in trouble. I think uh, because I from the from the change perspective, lots of people. If I can get you to do one piece of a behavior that's protecting you. You think about needle exchange or you think about people cutting down before quitting or any of those kind of things. Think about the, the smoking the great American smoke out. If I can get you to do some of those things and experience uh, a change and how to do it, then, then the probability is that you can learn a little bit from that and use that the next time you make a change attempt. Um, or as to gradually move forward to a larger, from a smaller to a larger change attempt, and and that's the the essence of kind of if you make it too big and either or, then people say, well, I have to do all of this big thing, so I'm not going to do anything, and that ends up being a problem. So so things like a needle exchange where you kind of say, okay, look, let's just reduce your risk of HIV and uh, transmission and 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 keep you HIV negative. Um, Even if I'm doing the behavior, if I'm shooting up heroin and kind of going, you know, well, I should do this, I should protect myself in that way, I'm already starting the person thinking about this is not a great behavior that I'm doing. So I'm already getting people to engage in some of the thinking pieces that might lead them to a larger change, lead them to kind of understand that maybe this I need to change more than just the needles. I need to change my
2: lifestyle. And for some people, um, this process is very gradual, where other people, um, who I think we call self-changers, it can be very quick. But most of the people we see in treatment are people that, that really are slower at the process.
3: Well, that's true, but even the self-changers a lot of times have tried multiple times before. Uh, there's very few people. I know there will be some in the audience who will go, no, no, it's, uh, I did it the first time I tried because uh, I've had those in my audiences when I've presented. But there are very few uh, people who haven't made some attempts that have failed in order to kind of learn what they're doing wrong. I mean, I'm thinking more and more these days about the function of failure. And, and failure really does help you to learn what went wrong, and how can I do it the next time better? And it's interesting, because the self-changers will say, well, this time I got it all right. This time I, uh, you know, I used to think I could do X or Y, or I used to think I didn't have to give up this part of it or that part of it. And, and this time I understood that, oh, if I'm going to really do this, I have to put this whole package together. So it's planning, commitment, uh, decision-making,
4: They they finally
3: get all of those pieces right, and it it enables them to kind of make and sustain the change over time.
2: And when we were talking about changes, you had mentioned earlier about the whole concept of initiation, whether it's a positive behavior or um, a not so positive behavior. And could you talk a little bit more about this this whole idea of initiation?
3: Sure. if you're going to make a behavior change, there's kind of three kinds of ways that you can change behavior. You can start a new behavior, you can modify a current behavior, or you can stop a current behavior. A current usually we try to stop problematic behaviors. Sometimes people stop good behaviors too. Um, but but if you think about even drug addiction or, or alcoholism or whatever, there's a there's a the same path. I mean, I, I'm doing a lot of work, actually, in uh, smoking cessation. And if you really think about it, what's the job of the tobacco companies is to get people who are pre-contemplators for smoking cigarettes to think about it and to kind of say, well, maybe I should try one of those, or maybe I should really think, maybe those aren't that bad, or maybe... And so they begin to think about it, um, and we actually have data where we can show where even adolescents who have never had a cigarette, you know, some of them are are leaning, have expectancies uh, that might lead them to kind of say, well, you know, it might not be that bad. So they become more open, and they're considering it a little bit, and, and then the opportunity arises, and they try it, and that becomes part of their considerations as well. They learn more about that, and... and all of that kind of leads them to kind of saying, well, maybe that was okay. Let me keep trying. So they would move through the stage of preparation where they're ready. They're more ready. They're open to it. They may even get committed to kind of trying it on a periodic basis until they get into doing it more regularly, and, and that's where you get hooked. So there's actually a lots of people who start down this road and then turn back. Uh, who have kind of thought about it and maybe tried it and said, okay, that's it, I'm not doing this anymore, and they went back. So it is a path, and if you think about people kind of going through that pathway, um, then they get into action, and we think about an action phase as, as you know anywhere from three to six months. So you, st- you start doing this behavior, and then you start creating a new pattern. And so now it's a pattern of problematic alcohol use or marijuana, and as that pattern gets going, then biology starts taking over and supporting and cementing that pattern of use. Um, and, and then you get a maintained uh, behavior change where you now have people who, you know, a lot of people we've treated for alcohol and uh, and tobacco, you know, they've been doing this now regularly for 20 years, sometimes 30 years, sometimes 40 years. Um, so that that becomes really part of who they are. As a matter of fact, they call themselves "I'm a smoker." Uh, they're not just somebody who smokes; they are a smoker. So, so that same process of kind of beginning to initiate uh, and then developing that really helps to um, really helps to uh, kind of get things going. So that's the that's the the problem, uh, as you see in terms of kind of moving forward. They, they then engage in that behavior. But, but you could take that same stage and look at, uh, initiation of, uh, exercise, for example, and how you have to get people convinced that this is a good idea, then they have to kind of build a plan, then they have to get organized in that plan and, and, uh, and, and do it on a regular basis and sustain it. Most of us get going, but we don't get it, get it in, is totally integrated into our lifestyle, so it doesn't keep going. So that's the idea behind starting a new behavior.
2: So in essence, when we have someone come into treatment for addiction or substance misuse, they're in action in that behavior. And what we're trying to do then is somehow engage them or initiate them into a brand new behavior that is probably the polar opposite of what they're currently doing.
3: Right. When they get into the... Once someone's in, it's really action or or maintenance, actually. Uh Um, They have to get into the, you know, in the whole process of action or maintenance. Then they, um, once they have maintained that, we have to decide when we're in treatment whether these folks really are in action or whether they are, have a maintained problem. Once they're in maintenance, we need to take them through the stages of recovery if they've just kind of got into action, like you see a lot of adolescents, they're they're engaging in it, messing around with it. Our job there is prevention, not treatment, because we have to move them back. We have to kind of discourage them from continuing this pattern and and have to move them back into earlier stages and hopefully convince them that this is not a good thing to to do uh, so that they'll then say, no, this is, I did that for a little bit, but I'm not going to do
2: this anymore really right. not my best interest to do this. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. And what about the stages of recovery? Well, the stages of
3: recovery are the ones we described as well. They're the same stages, but it's really now the challenge is how do you get somebody to quit a behavior that's become part of who they are and how they operate? Um and so that's really where you then move them through and you have to get through the ambivalence and do the other so it's really, it's interesting if you really think about addictions you could think about it as stages of becoming addicted and then once you're there and have it established you have to go through the stages of uh, recovery or stopping or uh, regaining kind of your uh, healthy perspective and a healthy uh, lifestyle
2: and when it's when you're in the throes of when uh, someone's in the throes of their addiction, they're benefiting in some way from, from that behavior and if there's some type of intervention, be it family or legal or um, job related, all of a sudden um they're being asked to take something that they've perceived as being beneficial and give it up. And mm-hmm. um, and that's a lot to try to um to, to rub up against and and, yep. and our expectation is that people are going to come in and like change immediately
3: right um, right and that's I mean you know most of us can see the negatives uh, for other people a lot easier than we can for ourselves and so a lot of us do the same thing I mean I'm always amazed I mean I think about people with health behavior problems I mean like diabetes and uh, cardiovascular problems and whatever and we say well gosh you know, this is a life-threatening illness. You need to do all of these things, but many of them don't do the things that they're supposed to do. It's not just addicts who don't do what we think they should do. Right. Um, so it, it's it's a it's a it's a behavior change challenge, I think, for all of us to kind of see which things we could do best and how to really make that change happen.
2: Um, we'll be right back with more of our presentation with Dr. Dee Clemente. Um, Stay tuned, and we'll be back in
1: a minute. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
4: Common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's Westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders.
0: For the most current and up-to-date information and options in childbearing, family health, and parenting, tune in to Celeste Rancies' timely topics in childbirth, broadcasting every Wednesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. If you don't know your options, you don't have any.
5: Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and, yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel.
2: Welcome back, everyone. Um, this is one hour of the time, and this is Mary Woodsworth with Dr. D. Clemente, and we're talking about um, the process of change. And uh, one of the things that I really began to understand when I started um, using this model, this trans-theoretical model, to conceptualize how people get through treatment is the importance of decision making, and um, whether it's in my own life and trying to battle my own weight loss or or gain or um, just beginning to understand um, how important it is to make a decision. And you had mentioned earlier how sometimes people come into treatment because they're mandated into treatment for one reason or another. And one of the things that I learned, um, I used to uh, do an education group here in New Hampshire at the state prison, and I always used to ask the guys, um, how many of you are going to stay sober when you get out of jail? And everybody would raise their hand. And then after I understood this model, I changed my question, and I said, how many of you are going to stay sober after you get off probation or parole? And probably only a third of the people um, had their hands up. Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, it's really important to learn how to tease out when someone comes in for treatment, what is the decision that they're making? Because I always assumed it was, well, they want to be sober and have a great life. And in reality, that's not always it.
3: You no, know, that's really true. Uh, people people change for lots of reasons, and sometimes what they do with a lot of these behaviors is stop them but don't change them. Um, and, I mean, I know people who have had alcohol problems who have kind of said, well, yeah, I'm going to stop doing this for a couple of weeks so I can t- show everybody that I'm not an alcoholic. So people stop behaviors. I mean, women stop smoking during pregnancy a lot of times just to protect the baby, not themselves, and, and go back immediately after they give birth. So, so you can, the decisions are made for lots of reasons. Um, we kind of talk about some of those reasons as kind of extrinsic reasons. Uh, so in your decision-making, usually there are lots of considerations. Sometimes it's about the, the environment or people around you, and it's about other people, and sometimes it's about yourself uh, and what you want for yourself. And, and my sense is, and there's some evidence for this, that that it's these intrinsic reasons, if you make these decisions based on the, that it's really good for you, and you're convinced that it's important for you to make this change for yourself, that that really has a lot more sustaining power than if you're just doing it uh, to stay out of jail again, or you're just doing it uh, to protect the baby uh, until the baby's born, or you're just doing it for some period of time to prove something to somebody, because those reasons go away and and they don't have the same power to really sustain the behavior. Uh, and what you really want ultimately is for the behavior to be self-sustaining. So you really want, I mean, I don't want you to have to go exercise. I want you almost to want to exercise or that exercise now becomes a part of what you do every day. So it's the normal thing that you do. It's not something
4: abnormal that
3: you have to go make a whole separate uh, effort to do. And that happens because you've made a decision, it seems to me, that really, I mean, based on some important values, uh, that it's a decision that's really kind of integral to, to who you are. And now this new behavior is going to become part of you. And, it, and it's interesting because we're now in the, you know, this is the time of year, uh, New Year's, where everybody is talking about uh, decisions and uh, New Year's resolutions. So you you have a whole interesting um, take on what decision-making, and a lot of people are making these because they feel they have to or they should make them or whatever, and there's not much heart in, in those decisions. And in fact, many of those decisions are not implemented,
2: as you know. One of the things that I think it might be um, useful for some of our audience um, to think about is the whole concept when someone comes into treatment of decision-making and, and how as providers can we help to teach people how to make um, good decisions because most people that we work with, decisions are impulsive or reactive. So what is a good decision-making process for folks?
3: Yeah, that's, a, that's a easier said than done a lot of times because I think um, we, we, we set up our decision-making processes early in life, and so some of us tend to be kind of uh, uh, thinkers who take a long time to make a decision, but when we make it, usually it really stays. Others really kind of make quick, impulsive decisions and then... Uh, lots of times they regret that. But no matter what, we have even a term in psychology that we call post-decisional regret. Um, it's uh, it's kind of, you know, every time you make a choice, you don't choose some other things. And so you kind of worry about, you know, did I make the right choice? Is this the right, exactly the right thing to do? So decision-making is a challenge of really looking at kind of the risks and the rewards of making a change. And I think how we can help people is really kind of to to make sure that they have all of the... Lots of times there's both implicit or not on the surface kind of reasons as well as explicit kind of reasons for doing things. And oftentimes people will very clearly talk about the explicit but not explore some of the things that are inside where, you know, I really... I don't really think I can live my life without this this particular substance. Now, normally they don't say that to a therapist because the therapist doesn't want to hear it, and they don't want to say it out loud. Right. So, I think one of the challenges for us is really to kind of again, if you're on the getting on the inside with that person, is really getting them to to talk about the things that are really important to them. To link what they're Thinking about two important values, to reconnect with some of the values that they've had um, that, that in some ways get lost. I, mean, I, I like to tell people, you know, I've never seen a high school yearbook that said, that's it, written underneath the picture, what I really want to do is become a drug addict, have two failed marriages, uh, go to jail for a year or two, uh, and not have a job. Nobody wants that. Right. So everybody's got some values that I think are important. And, and the idea, then, is to try and explore and connect to uh, important values and have them see it. The other thing about decision-making, I think, is people have to have hope. and And hope is also important in this process that, you know, if you're so discouraged, if, if on the on the negative side of change is it's going to be impossible, well, there isn't much decision-making you have to do uh, because it, it doesn't matter what decision you make, it's going to be impossible to implement or to do it. Right. So you have to help people with both the hope and, and kind of a thorough exploration of kind of the, their own considerations, especially the ones that they've made in multiple attempts that they're really hiding from themselves.
2: Right, right, and I think um, from from a treatment provider perspective, if someone hasn't made like a decision to stop drinking or to stop using drugs, then they really can't relapse. And I think oftentimes we mislabel people uh-huh. as chronic relapsers when, in effect, they're right. people that have just haven't made the decision that we assume they've made.
3: Excellent point. I agree with you completely. That a lot of times the relapse is not because they couldn't do it it's because they never really firmly made the decision uh, to to do it. And then when you get to do it and you don't have a decision to underpin that that's really strong, uh, you you fail. It's relatively simple.
2: Yeah, And people then perceive themselves as, I'm a chronic relapser, Um, I'm so hopeless, I'm Mm -hmm. never going to get this right. And it becomes this vicious cycle that um, is really sad. Right. You know?
3: No, I think the, the death of hope is really one of those things that, you know, that's why I say you really have to kind of encourage and really kind of help people understand. And, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about AA and all the mutual help groups. Um, you see in many of the mutual help groups people who were there, who were like you, and who made it. Right. And, you know, that modeling, I think, is a very important thing. You know, there's lots of important stories out there of people who have been successful in getting overcoming their addictions.
2: And I think that um, you know when we're talking about um, people changing how important it is to have hope but also how important it is um, for us as providers to really be able to um, think about our language when we speak with people and, and so that we are providing hope and we're not doing the shaming and blaming, that um, that can can occur. I know when I first started this profession, it was very confrontive. Um, everybody was considered to be in the action stage, and if you weren't, then um, you know we were told to come back when you were ready. Mm-hmm.
4: So, um,
3: yep. Shame on you is really uh, not not a good motivating. I mean, guilt and shame do not motivate very well. I think they actually just push people backwards. Right. And confrontation does the same thing, actually.
2: You and there's a way of delivering the confrontation, or, or that's probably not even the right word. But there's a way of delivering information that people need to hear that can they can be supportive and not shaming and blaming.
3: Yep. No, I agree completely, Mary. If you you know if you deliver it in the wrong way, it shuts down rather than opens up. And your challenge always as a provider is how can I reach this person and how can I how can they hear what it is I'm trying to to them, or how can they hear even their own inner voice uh, even better, that, you know, this lifestyle isn't good, I need to make a change. I mean, uh, almost everyone who is engaging in problematic behavior has a little voice in there uh, that says, you
2: know, this really isn't that good for me. Right. uh, I know um, at Westbridge we work with a lot of families who are often in action, if you will, um, they're ready to make changes in their life. They're ready to do whatever they need to do to treat the person in the family that has the co-occurring substance use and mental um, mm-hmm. health issue. And yet the person, the identified person in the family is really pre-contemplative. And right. And and what's great is we give everybody your book. We give all the families your book and say, please read this and then we're going to talk about it. But sometimes that still isn't enough. Families mm-hmm. are in action and they want their family member to be in action and um, do you have any words of wisdom for, for us and for other treatment providers that kind of get in this bind?
3: Well, I think it's it's uh, hard, I think, uh, you know, to ask people to, to kind of wait a little bit. And that's always been the case. I mean, okay. asking people to be, um, to, to, to wait and let other people catch up is not easy. Um, right. But maybe we can talk about it after the break. And...
2: Okay. We'll be right back and we'll. Find out more about what we can do when our families are in action and our uh, clients are in pre contemplation. Be right back.
1: A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness.
5: The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Autism One, a conversation of hope, hosted by Betsy Hicks, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable, and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Betsy offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities adult services, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcasts each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope.
1: Your life, your health, your network.
2: Welcome back, everyone. We're um, talking with Dr. Carlo DiClemente Clemente about the process of change. And before going into break, I'd ask Dr. Di- Clemente to talk a little bit about um, how we can help families who are in the action stage—they're ready to do whatever it takes to um, help the person in their family with a uh, with a substance use disorder, mental illness, obesity, whatever. Yet the, the identified person really is precontemplative. So. I was hoping Dr. Clemente could give us some words of wisdom here.
3: Yeah, there's no there's no magic to that. I do think that um, you know families need to take action about the things that they can take action on, and that's the that's one challenge I think that's there. I mean, what they you can't make somebody else do something. I mean, you might be able to get it, them to do it for a little bit just by force of your will, but But it's very difficult to kind of make someone, even the courts have a difficult time making people do things when they have all the contingencies around that are important. So I think that what I try to work with families, you you kind of try to give them, you know, instead of a lot of negatives, which I think is really what usually happens is, you must change, this is terrible, you're doing a terrible thing, to try and look at positives and focus on some of the things of what, what are some of the good things that we'd like to see happen. Um, to make those kind of suggestions with uh, love, to look at what you have control over and to see what it is you want to do. Lots of families are frustrated by what... but they're over-functioning a lot of times and, you know, they need to stop over-functioning for this person and maybe let some consequences uh, happen so that that person can learn from the consequences. So so I, I, I have to back off a little bit and let... Um, Uh, take control of what they can do, but also uh, try to help, let the other person try to see what what they can do. And it's really surprising sometimes, just backing off is very therapeutic. So I don't know that there's any magic. Uh, We've tried to kind of say at every stage, family can be helpful or can hinder. Uh, And you can hinder by really pushing. I mean, the more you push a lot of times, the pre-contemplator, the more they go the opposite direction and are going to prove to you that they can't change. Right. So you have to be careful not to get in locked into that kind of a negative spiral.
2: Um I was just wondering if maybe you could share with us some um type of exercise or whatever to for for each of us to understand like I'm contemplating losing weight again. Mm-hmm. How will I be able to gauge which where where in the process I am?
3: Well that's a good a good question. I mean it's a good thing, especially around this New Year's time. I mean I guess I I think uh, there are several things. One is to kind of really to think through, is this the, the top priority? Most of us can't make lots of multiple changes at once. I know, you know, we go, okay, well it's a new year, I'm gonna be a new me, I'm gonna do all of these things. Well, if some people can do that, but most of us have a tough time doing five or six things new. Um, it's better to kind of segment it out and try to figure out which is the top priority. So I try to kind of look and say, okay, well, what's the thing that you really want the most? Even if it's about diet and weight, it's it's which thing seems to be the more most important piece of that for you and and help you to kind of figure out, do I have enough reasons? Have I really made a firm decision? Is this just something, New Year's is coming, so I have to make a decision, or is this really me? And if you've really made the decision, then say, well, let's let me look at my plan and my commitment. Um, did I make this, a, is this a top priority for me, or is this one of the things where I go, you know, if I have time, I'm going to do this. You know, most of us can't fit some of these bigger behavior changes into small pieces of our lives. We really have to set aside time and energy. That's the problem of making a change, so if it doesn't have a priority, it then you're back in contemplation if you're not really making it a priority and having the commitment. Um, So I would just say to try and really look at all of those pieces and see what you have done uh, and what you have ready and how much you're really ready to commit uh, before, you know, jumping out and saying, okay, I'm going to do this in the new year. Uh, January 1st is really not that much different from December 31st. (laughs) It, uh, it it's the it's just the next day, so unless you really have done some of the work, uh, there's no magic to just because it's a, a, it's 2008, uh, this is going to happen automatically. And, and I guess that's the other thing is to kind of make sure it's not just fantasy
2: that you really have some reality underlying this. Is there anything that um, I mean? If if I how will I know? If, when I've made the decision, when I'm ready to do whatever it takes, when I.
3: Well, I think, yeah. I think part of it is uh, ready to do whatever it takes. Part of it is um, if, if you've made a firm decision, then it won't be hard to prioritize this
0: particular issue.
3: Um, it'll be easier to do that. Now, you will have to also move other things around in your life. Some other things may have to take up. for a little while until you get a new pattern of behavior going. So, you know, say, okay, well, I really like to just sit and watch TV in the afternoon and you have to get an exercise regimen going. Several of the days when you do that, you may have to give up that other thing and you have to go out and do this until you really get a pattern to where now, what I really like to do is go exercise three times a week. So, yeah, I think that the decision, part of the commitment is uh, really setting a date part of it is kind of being really concrete about what you're going to do and not wishy-washy. I mean, if I really is not clear what you're going to do, I'm not sure how much of a firm decision and I'm certainly not sure how much of a firm commitment you've made. So, I don't know, maybe that'll be helpful to you, Mary. I'm not sure, but I would uh, hopefully it'll, it'll help you kind of see where you are and what's going on in your
2: in your commitment and Well, one thing I know is that I always have to talk to myself a lot in my head before I can get to the point where I actually do it.
3: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: You Mm -hmm. know?
3: Yep. Work work it out. You have to – well, as I was say, there's a lot of competing interests.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, If people are looking for more information on um, the stages of change, whether they're um, professionals or lay people, um, can you give us some resources? Sure.
3: There's, um, uh, well, my book uh, published by Guilford is called Addiction and Change. It's really a little more for professionals. I think uh, people who understand addictions could read it. It's not um, esoteric, but it is a little more for professionals. Uh, we also have done a book, uh, Prochaska, Norcross, and Clemente have a book called Changing for Good. And it's, uh, it's out in paperback. You can get it through Amazon. Uh, or any of the outlets, even Barnes and Noble. It might not be on the shelf, but you might be able to order it. Um, and it just came out on a new, they just redid the cover and stuff. And it's, it really helps to try and talk to you and does have some self-assessments as to where are you in this process and how can you, what would you need to do in each of these stages to really make a good decision and make a good behavior change. Um, we also have a website at the university, um, it's uh, UMBC, University of Maryland Baltimore County, dot .edu, and then you'd go to the psychology, so it's backslash psych and backslash habits. I have a habits laboratory there where we're trying to kind of understand this process. Uh, so there's a lot of our measures up there and some of the studies we're doing and things like that. Um, and then, as you know, lots of people are using the STAGES model in a lot of different uh, programs. They'll find it. In, uh, if you just do stages of change on the uh, Internet and Google that, I'm sure you'll find a whole lot of different uh, things
2: uh, with regards to
3: different kinds of behaviors.
2: And I guess um, just to kind of wrap up, we've been focusing on addiction, and um, we've talked a little bit about HIV, but the trans-theoretical model has been proven to, uh, to kind of stand up to other behavior changes as well, correct?
3: Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, proven is always difficult. There's a lot of support for using this model or thinking about this as a change of a variety of behaviors. And like I said, whether the process is kind of starting a new one, modifying an old one, or stopping an old one, a current one, um, there's evidence in each of those areas that the model seems to help us and help make sense out of the change process for folks. So it, it, it does, I mean, people have used it for diets and exercise, and uh, I know some people are using it for adherence to medication regimens and um, diabetes, uh, monitoring glucose, and those kind of things, um, as well as other mental health behaviors as well.
2: Um, I want to thank Dr. Clemente for spending this hour with us. Um, I learned a lot, as usual, when I talked to Dr. DiClemente, and i just want to thank you so much for this research because it certainly has made the lives of a lot of uh, individuals and families um much better and it certainly made our treatment much better and i just want to thank you and um wish everybody a merry christmas and a happy new year and you're happy very holidays. welcome
3: mary and happy holidays to you too and uh hope everything keeps going well on your show
2: thank you thank you and enjoy your time off